couple decades ago, uh, a funny movie came out called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, and the movie follows the main character, Tula, who has a very big, very loud, very Greek family. It's a family she loves deeply, but it's also a family that occasionally overwhelms her and embarrasses her. You might be familiar with that situation. Um, and so when she meets a, a, a guy, a, a nice professor at a local community college, and the two of them begin a relationship, uh, she initially tries her best to keep that secret from her family. She worries that if her family finds out about it, they're going to do what they always do, which is probably overwhelm him and maybe worse, you know, scare him off. But of course, the secret gets out, the family finds out about the relationship, and they immediately set about doing what she was afraid they were going to do. No sooner do they find out, they say, we got to plan and host a dinner for the entire family so we can all meet them at one time. And they begin planning this event, of course, with no input from Tula at all. Uh, eventually, they get down to planning the menu. And finally, she interjects and she says, whoa, 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 you, you can't make all that stuff. He, he's a vegetarian. And her sister-in-law says, whoa, whoa, what, do you, what do you mean he's a vegetarian? And she goes, He's a vegetarian. He doesn't eat meat. And all of a sudden, this incredibly loud room goes totally silent. Her sister-in-law looks at her and goes, what do you mean he don't eat no meat? She says, well, I mean, he doesn't eat meat. A couple more seconds of uncomfortable silence, and finally the sister-in-law says, ah, that's okay. I'll make lamb. It's a great scene, and it encapsulates what I think is one of the big themes of the movie, which is the joy and challenge of taking two very different families and bringing them together. Halfway through the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus are experiencing similar growing pains. The explosive growth of the church among non-Jewish people groups has created new tensions, new challenges, and also new joys. But before we dive into that, I just want to recap very quickly how we got here. The starting point of Acts from a narrative, historical, and theological point of view is the fact that Jesus has ascended and he is now enthroned in heaven. Uh, the whole book is built upon the foundation of Jesus sitting at the right hand of Yahweh in the throne room of creation. Jesus as Lord of creation. If you take that one fact away, none of the theology that follows will make any sense. You take that away, and none of the story that follows, none of the events that happen make any sense. Everything that happens in the book of Acts happens because Jesus has been revealed as the world's rightful Lord. Second thing that gets us here is that Jesus, reigning as Lord, has sent his Holy Spirit to build his kingdom and empower his followers as they bear witness to his lordship. Uh, we just read together the passage, the record of, of when that happened. Uh, and as we saw last week, this gift is given to anyone and everyone who gives their allegiance to Jesus. That is, you can receive the Holy Spirit as a result of faith in Jesus alone. That also means that all people, no matter their past, no matter their nationality, their social status, everyone receives the same gift, the same Spirit, as a result of their allegiance to Jesus. An Ethiopian court official, a Roman centurion, and the Jewish brother of Jesus, all of them, once they give their allegiance to Jesus, receive the same Holy Spirit. God shows no favoritism. 
So if you take those two things together, uh, the logic works something like, like this. If God, or because God, has made Jesus Lord of all people, then the gospel has to be preached and shared with all people. And because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, all people can now be restored to a right relationship with the Holy God. Uh, so on that basis, on the basis uh, of Jesus' sacrifice uh, and his lordship, everyone can be adopted into God's family through the Holy Spirit. Or you can think of it this way. This is a nice little shorthand. Jesus, in his victory over sin and death, is the reason that we're able to be adopted into God's family. And the Holy Spirit is the means by which we are adopted. So that's all exciting. It's great news. But the question is, what now? Now that you have all these different people from different backgrounds streaming in, what does it mean? What will it look like for all these different peoples to be the one people of God? Just practically, how is that going to work during worship and meals and just in the day-to-day -day realities of life? Well, look with me at Acts 15, verse, starting in verse 1, as the church tries to wrestle with that question. It says this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to put God to the test by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they then listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. All right, so what we have here, if you're following it, is a record of the biggest and most divisive dispute in the early church. At this point, it was clear to everyone uh, that God was moving, that he was drawing unprecedented numbers of Gentiles to himself. People from all different ethnic and political backgrounds were hearing the good news about Jesus, and they were responding by giving their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. All good things. But now, all these different people start coming together, and as they do that, uh, they start to gather to do church, that is, to worship and pray and eat together. And we're starting to encounter some friction and some problems. 
The fundamental problem is that they all are coming with very different ideas of how all those things look. I mean, you think we've got worship wars today. Try being an observant Jew, worshiping with other observant Jews according to very specific, uh, very careful guidelines for how to do all those things. And then all of a sudden, you're joined by a whole bunch of very recent pagan converts. And they've got completely different ideas of what worship looks like, of what food you should eat, and just in general, of what qualifies as a life well-lived. You're trying to worship the same God, but each group is just constantly stepping on the toes of the other group, doing things that offends them. So what do you do? How do you resolve that problem? Well, what we see in Acts 15 is that early on, two competing visions for the people of God arise. The first is expressed by a group that speaks in verses 1 and 5. They're described as belonging to the party of the Pharisees. And their position is that all converts, no matter their background, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. We'll call this, just for simplicity's sake, the cultural assimilation model. Because the idea is that when they give their allegiance to Jesus, whether they be Roman, Ethiopian, Persian, everyone leaves behind their previous identity and they become Jews. Circumcision, kosher, the whole law of Moses. Now, before we dismiss this position, let me just say a couple things. First, this was the way that Gentile inclusion in the people of God had worked for a few thousand years. Now, I grant you, never before had quite so many from among the nations come asking to join God's people, but there had always been some. And the way it had always worked was that if you wanted to be counted as among God's people, you took upon yourself the outward marks of God's people, i.e. circumcision. And you lived as they lived, i.e. the law of Moses. In other words, there is vast precedent for this approach. Second, when God gave his instruction, his Torah, to Israel, the people who bear his name, the whole point was that it was instruction in how to live as the people that bear his name. From their point of view, choosing to join God's people meant choosing to live as God's people had always lived. I mean, what else could that possibly mean? Joining God's people meant becoming Jewish because the Jews were God's people. Now, I think you have to admit, there's a certain logic to that. And again, it has the great benefit of being the status quo, the way things have always been done. And if you can enforce it, it does solve your problem, right? I mean, no more fights over eating habits or worship styles. You're joining us, so that means you eat and you worship like we eat and we worship. But what it also ends up doing is kind of flattening all peoples into one people, shaving off all variety and diversity in the name of unity. And that leaves some people wondering if this can really be the right path. I mean, if we force all converts to become Jews, then is Jesus really Lord of all people, or is he now just Lord of a more populous Israel? And it makes you wonder, too, why would God create all this wonderful, beautiful variety if his plan all along was just to flatten that down later? Well, 
that question, those kinds of questions, bring us to a second vision for God's people, voiced by Peter, Barnabas, and Paul. Uh, We can call their vision uh, the cultural redemption model. Because the idea here is that Romans, Ethiopians, Persians, everyone who gives their allegiance to Jesus must and will find fresh cultural expressions for themselves in light of the gospel. What that means is they don't cease to be Ethiopian, Persian, and Roman. Rather, that when they are freed from the power of sin and learn in obedience to Jesus, they come to a new and fuller and richer understanding of what it means to belong to those cultures. Those cultures, in other words, are not erased, they're not flattened, they are redeemed. Uh, There's a concept in music called dissonance. Uh, Dissonance is what happens when you play two notes at the same time that are not compatible. Uh, The two frequencies combine and they produce a new frequency that is very unpleasant. Uh, The beauty of dissonance is you don't have to be a great musical mind to recognize dissonance. It it seems to be something that's almost hardwired into us. It's it's actually, it's kind of a funny experiment you can do. Uh, It seems almost all people, when they hear it, have a physical response. We, We cringe. We know something's not right. Those two sounds should not be blended together. Musically speaking, there's broadly two ways that you can avoid dissonance. The first thing you could do is you could insist that everyone can only play the exact same note at the exact same time. You do that, no more dissonance. You don't have different frequencies combining because everyone's playing the same one. Now, that works, but it also ends up, as you might suspect, to be kind of thin and boring. It's it's just the one frequency, the one sound, you know, no dissonance, but not very interesting. Well, thankfully, there's a second way you can avoid dissonance. And the way you can do that is you can play different notes at the same time that are all obedient to the higher logic of music, the mathematics of music. You can play different frequencies that are compatible. When they blend together, they produce a new sound, richer and fuller and beautiful. You can only get it when you play different notes at the same time, and you can only get it when those different notes are obedient to that higher logic. It's unity through harmony instead of unity through sameness. That's the vision that Peter and Paul and Barnabas have for the church. Unity through harmony, where where cultures aren't flattened out, aren't made the same, but rather where all cultures are brought into a common obedience to Jesus. I hope that sounds good to you, because it ought to be. It's it's what we're supposed to believe today about the church. But what I want to ask is, well, how did we get here? If that other model was the model for thousands of years, what happened that we have the model we do today? Well, it starts with Peter making the case for it. He does that by recounting his experience we talked about last week from Acts chapter 10. At this point, it's been a few years, uh, but Peter recounts the story, and the point he hammers home as he reflects on his own experience is that God showed that he accepted Cornelius and his household by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to Peter and the other Jewish believers at Pentecost. And Peter's point is that God accepted them right then, right at that moment. He accepted those Romans as Romans. 
He didn't wait for them to be circumcised before he gave them the Holy Spirit. And if God didn't force them to be circumcised, if he didn't force them to eat kosher before he was willing to enter into fellowship with them, then then who was Peter? Who were they to refuse fellowship until these other believers did those things? Peter then concludes with what I think is a very Peter point, where he says, and besides, why would, how can we ask them to do something that we've never been able to do? We're all saved by grace, and we receive the same spirit. Well, after Peter opens the door, Barnabas and Paul add their testimony. And essentially, what they do is they confirm that what Peter experienced was neither a fluke nor a special circumstance, They say, hey guys, listen, we've been traveling all around the Mediterranean world sharing the gospel with Gentiles and what Peter experienced, that's what we experience everywhere we go. Well, everywhere we go, we preach the good news about Jesus and everywhere we go, there are Gentiles who hear it and believe it and guess what? Right then, right at that moment, when they give their faith to Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit too. They then go on to share about the many miraculous things God has done through their ministry, confirming that this is the model God has chosen for his church. Well, when both sides finish making their cases, uh, James renders a decision on behalf of the elders and apostles. So look with me back at chapter 15, this time starting in verse 13. When they'd all finished up, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from among the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it's written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. James then concludes, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, if you're wondering, we don't know for certain, but we think this James is the brother of Jesus, and he appears at this point to be the leader of the church. He's the church chairman, more or less. And James decides in favor of the cultural redemption model, but he does it, I think, in a very wise way. He first appeals to the testimony of Peter, which everyone there uh, seems to believe. Uh, And even if they didn't, Peter had other witnesses who had traveled with him who would say, yeah, that, that's the way it happened. But notice what James says in verse 14. He says, God has shown his concern for the Gentiles by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. He then quotes, this is a quote that, he, that we read from the prophet Amos, and the quote is about the time when God will return to his people, when he will restore Israel. And what Amos says is that in that time, when God does those things, he will, he will do it so that a remnant from all people might seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear his name. Now, why is that important? Why is that significant? 
Well, because the logic of the opposition is that the Jews are the people of God. They are the ones who bear God's name. So if the Gentiles want to be part of God's people, then they have to become Jews. Well, James agrees, yes, of course. God has written his name on the Jewish people. But the prophet Amos foretold that one day when God returned to his people and restored Israel, on that day, God said that he was going to begin writing his name on other nations as well. On that day, Amos said, Jews and Gentiles will bear my name. So what James concludes, based on the testimony of Peter and Barnabas and Paul, is that today is that day. He says, listen, who, who here would doubt that God has returned to, to his people? Of course he has. He's returned in his Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus has restored Israel. And more than that, Jesus has explicitly commissioned some of us present to bring the gospel to Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So what James says is, look, we are living in the days that Amos foretold. Those days are today's, and that means that no longer are Jews the only people to bear God's name, but now Gentiles too will bear his name. The Gentile believers, therefore, do not need to become Jews because God is now writing his name on all people. I don't know if you can tell, but I love that phrase, that picture, God writes his name on people. Uh, I like it. I, I know it's a, kind of a unique and unusual expression, but if you think about it, it's an expression that means exactly the same thing to us today that it meant back then. We still do this. Uh, my father-in-law loves to write his initials on everything that he owns. That's a habit he got from his father. If you were to go to his house or his garage or his cabin, you will find all of his tools and clothing and you know, fishing equipment, books, all of it is going to have G-A-H written somewhere on it. So if you're sitting here this morning and you've got a book at home that, or a tool that has G-A-H written on it, that's not yours, that's his. That's why he writes his initials on it. So that he will remember and so that you will know that those things belong to him. They are his. What the church decides in Acts 15 is that God wants to do that no longer just on Israel, who has always borne his name, but that God is now writing his name on all people. He writes his name so that the world will know they are his and they belong to him. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius, God sent him so that he might write his name on some Romans as Romans. When the Spirit sent Philip to the Ethiopian court official, he sent him not so that God could make a bunch of Ethiopians into Jews, but so that he might write his name on Ethiopians as Ethiopians. If you ask me, that's some beautiful theology. And what it means in practice is that the gospel neither erases nor fully validates any culture. I think of it like this. Just as no person is beyond redemption, no culture is beyond redemption. But the flip side of that is also true. Just as every person needs to be redeemed, every culture needs to be redeemed as well. 
Pastor Paul, next week, as we finish up our series in Acts, is going to delve into that task a little bit more deeply. What does it look like for a culture to reckon with how it can be redeemed and transformed by the gospel? Because all cultures have elements of sin and brokenness. And yet all cultures, freed from sin and made obedient to Christ, will find their fullest and richest expression in him. This presents, I think, a challenging but very rewarding task when it comes to missions. We need to make sure that as we share the gospel with people from other cultures, that we don't also try to impose our particular expression on them. If we do that, what we're doing is we are removing a unique note from God's melody. God, through the sacrifice and lordship of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has made a new Jew plus Gentile people of God. A single people, united not through sameness, but by the lordship of Jesus and the bond of the Spirit. Not flattened, harmonized. United under God's great melody, each culture brings a unique note that harmonizes with all the others. And each culture needs to discover their own contribution to that symphony of praise. Second note before I finish this morning. Just as God wants to write his name on Jews as Jews and Persians as Persians, he wants to write his name on you as you. Just as God doesn't plan to flatten all cultures into one culture, uh, he does not want to flatten all people and personalities into one either. Each of you was uniquely created and crafted by God. Each of you given a unique set of gifts and talents. And the point of discipleship isn't to shave off all of those uniquenesses and differences. Rather, it's to help each person discover how they can uniquely contribute to the kingdom. Redemption does not reduce us. It frees us to be the people God has always created us to be. I suspect that some of you, like me, wrestle at times with how to do that. Uh, wrestle with the temptation to, to look around and, and think that we would be better Christians if we were really just more like the other Christians that we see. But that's simply not true. The real task, both harder and more rewarding, is to figure out by the power of the Holy Spirit how we can be the person God created us to be. Listen, the Apostle Paul was a brilliant theologian and writer, and he was also passionate and fiery. And God used passionate people like Peter and like Paul to bring the gospel to all sorts of people, and also he used them here to make a passionate case for the, the cultural redemption model. But he also used the quiet and steady wisdom of James to issue the decision in a way that would not inflame existing tensions. God wanted Peter and Paul to be Peter and Paul, but he also wanted James to be James. And he wants you to be you. The you he created you and redeemed you to be. To play the note that only you are able to play in the cosmic worship of our God. Listen, I, I know, I understand, that in our particular expression of church and worship, it is easier to see how some gifts and some personalities can plug in and contribute the, than others. 
You know, if you've got a gift for teaching or for music or for working with kids, it's usually pretty easy to find a way that you can get plugged in and contribute. But our church, God's church, needs all of your gifts. We need people with the gift of gardening, if you haven't noticed outside. We need people with the gift of hospitality. We need people with the gift of encouragement and patience, with the gift for listening. Listen, God created you and redeemed you to be the person that you uniquely are. My challenge to you this morning, maybe over the next week, is to think about and pray about how God has uniquely gifted you and how you can use your gifts to contribute to his kingdom work. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as again we recognize so clearly your hand, your leading in the building of your church. Lord, I just thank you for the beauty of this theology. Again, it's the kind of thing that I encounter and I think only you, Lord, could have authored this. I thank you for this beautiful vision uh, of a people of God not flattened into sameness, uh, but a harmony, a symphony of worship as each culture brings what it uniquely can contribute to the worship and praise of our God. Lord, what a fitting and appropriate form of worship for the creator God of all things. Lord, I pray that you would help us as well. Uh, Help us to find our own unique expression. Help us to find the ways that you have specifically gifted us and called us. Uh, Help us to find the area where we can contribute uniquely to your symphony of worship here at First Free. In your name we pray, amen.